Welcome to DER Weekends, where unlike the Detroit Evening Report during the week, focused on the news of the day, we spend some time with the people and places that make Detroit special. And Sasha Ryan is joining me. Hey, Sasha. Hey, Nargis. So tell us about the story that you brought us today. So I had the chance uh, to have a really nerdy conversation with a physics professor from the University of Detroit Mercy. His name is Prasad Vinagopal, and he has put together these curricula that focus on the intersection of science, race, and gender. One of the classes he teaches is called Science, Technology, and Race, and he, years ago, got funding from the Jesuit community to, to create this class. And he says that it gave him an opportunity to really marry his identities as a social activist focused on issues of race and labor and gender with his identity as a scientist and a physics professor. And so in lieu of being able to take these classes, I asked him as many questions as I could, and it was a really fun conversation. That sounds awesome. Let's take a listen. I was always struck by this disconnect between what I was teaching my students and the world that I inhabited outside of the classroom. It almost felt like I had to leave most of who I was outside the classroom and enter this supposed space of neutrality and universal truths and all of those. And that was a problem for me. I knew it wasn't true. I knew I walked in who I was. I was an immigrant. I was a person of color. My students were African-Americans, Arab-Americans, uh, white working class students, uh, students from the middle class, students with great religious um, convictions and so on. And I just felt like, why are we not looking at the way science and all of these social factors intersect with each other. So what would you teach in a course that is about science, technology, and race? We started looking at the census, and it's a remarkable exercise to just take uh, the Pew Roundtable has this document that just um, reflects the racial categories in the census from 1790 onwards. So I present my students with the census, and they see all these racial categories and some ethnic categories mixed in there. And the question I ask them is, take a look at it from 1790 all the way to the present, and tell me what you see. And of course, what they notice is that racial categories change, um, that they were very few. They were basically um, slaves, free blacks, and whites. And then as you go through the decades, you start seeing... Hindus suddenly show up as a racial category, even though it clearly refers to, to religion. You see uh, a Chinese Americans showing up, Japanese Americans. Um, you start seeing blacks split up after the Civil War um, and so on. And even before, you, you see the census break them down according to the percentage of, of ancestry, black ancestry that they had. So we get all these racially pejorative terms like mulatto and so on. And we start seeing all of these things. And then suddenly they all disappear and new categories appear. Well, the first question is, when, what are these changes? The changes in the census categories, what do they reflect? And broadly speaking, they reflect changes in American history. Very seminal points such as the, the Civil War, the end of the Civil War, and so on. 
But then the second thing they realize, there is a lot of controversy and complexity about the definition of race itself. So they start seeing this connection between medicine, biology, race, and the census. And it really sticks with them a lot. And then I talk to them about one, probably one of the most boring things from a title point, and it's the Office of Management and Budgets Directive 15. It's a very dry document, but they recognize that a lot of the research that's done in the United States, particularly government-funded research, uses racial categories set established by OMB Directive 15. And they see the NIH and NSF and all of these uh, institutions, as well as private entities, using Directive 15 to help categorize these racial categories. And some of, some of them are not even racial. So they, they start seeing the connection with biology uh, and science and med medical research and the census. We talk about the fact that it didn't come from ancient times, but developed in the 15th, 16th century and so on. And we, we trace a little bit of that. Um, and then we bring all, ourselves all the way to the 21st century when we talk about genetics and race. When we talk about how our perceptions of race and identity, of culture, how uh, what we bring to the science affects the science. It's, it's a clearer thing for me to see how, how that might work in like chemistry, which I can relate to medicine mm -hmm. or how it might work with, you know, biological sciences. It's harder for me to see how it works with physics. Physics has always been a very tough nut to crack. Physics has done a remarkable job in, in producing this framework that says we are only dealing with the natural world. We're looking for universal truths and so on. And, and so that sense of objectivity, value neutrality, and so on is very deeply embedded within the way physics is done. I decided I wasn't going to go the route of the famous physicists um, to talk about Benjamin Banneker as a, as a astronomer and just talk about somebody like Dr. Neil deGrasse Tyson or someone. And you're the famous physicist. Um, so in a physics class, having students read biographies seemed like the craziest thing to do. They don't really read their physics textbook, and here I am tossing a second book into the mix. But I had them read uh, The Boy Who Harnessed the Wind, which is a story of this young inventor from Malawi who created a windmill in his, uh, in his little village using scrap parts from the tobacco estates. And he produced this windmill, and he was able to charge phones with it and so on. It was a tremendous achievement, and the biography is, is really well written. And then uh, in a subsequent semester, I had my students read about the hidden figures. So they were finding out, as they were reading the book, they were learning how ordinary people, and by ordinary people, I mean people whose names are not in some pantheon of great physicists. Ordinary people did extraordinary things in their lives using physics. So tell me what you want your students to do with this knowledge and perspective. How do you want this to kind of live in the world? I want my students to be the best scientists that they can be. And I want them to understand that the best scientists that they can be is, is very much connected with the values that they bring with them. They can be anti-racist scientists. They can be feminist scientists. They can be scientists who are very involved in racial and class equity and so on. They're scientists who can look at the common good as they do their science. They can be scientists who ask, what impact is this going to have on society? How can I minimize the harms 
In other words, I want my students and I want all our students to bring very strong values of the common good of justice into the science that they do. That was Prasad Vinagopal talking with Sasha Ryan. So let's dig a little deeper into the conversation that you had. One of the things that the speaker mentioned was the concept of taking science and feeling like you have to have to remove yourself from it as an immigrant or a person of a different race than what is usually, you know, a white uh, Caucasian perspective to science. What would you like to tell me about, you know, how he was describing it? What is the takeaway that you felt after having that conversation with him? It's a really interesting idea because you could see both how in our culture of science, we have this idea that people are not in it, that, you know, that you basically, you know, you put your mind on the table and then you describe these processes and you try to keep them sterile by keeping the people out of it. But when you think about it more and look at the history of science, then you see that the dominant culture has always been a part of how science is handled and managed and talked about and how um, we develop both the ideas about what questions we should be asking and how we ask those questions and the idea then of broadening that conversation to look at both how the question would be different if different people were asking it and how the question would be different if more people with different perspectives were asking it, but also how the question that is asked is formed by whoever the asker of the question is. It's a really interesting thing to kind of put on the table. And it's shocking that at this point in history, we don't actually have that conversation more often when we think about science, who's asking this question, who's affected, how are you shaped by it, and how can I, from my different perspective, how can I bring my own perspective and experience into that question? So Prasad talks about taking his students on a journey through looking at the senses as a way to understand science. And the census is really supposed to be a reflection of the people in the United States. What are some highlights that you took away from his discussion of how that shapes science based on the census? I think what it makes so obvious is that our ideas about what race is are made up. Like the the whole concept of race is a social construct that changes as we need it to. You know, it depends on who's in the room who's in the country, you know, what we are thinking about in terms of resources and politics and and our comfort level. You know, what I hear when he talks about the history of the census is the discussion in the country about who we're comfortable with, who's like us, what is the difference now, who are we distracted by. You know, you can imagine at different points in history – Europeans in America looking up and saying, well, you know, hey, those people are new. <laughs> you know, what does it mean? And so it's it's interesting to talk about the implications of the social politics and how that shaped science. And the, so the idea of looking at race and considering it a rigid fact and then looking at our history and the, how we documented ourselves and each other and realizing that. It wasn't fact. It was all 
culture. It was all politics. It was all, um, you know, very human ways of moving through the world, but not fact. Yeah. And one interesting thing is the way that the census was in the beginning. And he said it, you know, looking at like 1790s, that a lot of people were either they were either white or they were black. But people were not all black. A lot of the people that were in the U.S. were from different countries of origin. But you kind of were really based on what you look like. It was very subjective. And he said something interesting, like then all of a sudden you see a, a category like Hindu pop up. And he's like, that's not even a racial category. He also mentioned the Office of Management and Budgets, Statistical Policy Directive Number 15. This office basically determines how federal funds move through the U.S. And recently it came up when people have been for a while now trying to get the MENA category, the Middle Eastern, North African category, on the census so more communities could be counted. And what that really means is like you mentioned, how policies are made, how um, it, it, it basically says this community needs the funds to get research done so they can have science and technology that's geared toward that community. What do you think we ought to be thinking about in terms of how this looks in the future and how it impacts communities of color? That's such a great question. So much of our local community is really pushing to add the Middle Eastern, North African Southwest Asian, North African categories to the census. And so, you know, there's this tension between the idea of arbitrarily identifying and counting people and the need to identify the people who actually are present and who actually do need not only resources and support, but to be identified so that we can have these more complicated discussions. So we can talk about how many people in our community really are Middle Eastern, North African, Southwest Asian, North African, and all of the other categories that we may not be counting. And so not being able to claim your identity and history and um, and present your community, being kind of absent from the discussion is really important. But that Office of Management and Budget also means you are absent from monetary decisions. And as he said, you're absent from you know, how grants that affect health services and um, community resources and, you know, everything that the federal government and then we can assume state governments become a part of this, all of the, the things that get allocated and resourced and measured by not having people identified and represented and included and you know, both separated into their groups and included in the American group. That's an excellent point because, um, you know, just even looking at medicine and he mentioned biology, science, if there isn't any data to talk about the health implications in communities, communities cannot get help and the grant funding to support them. The, that also reminds me, it is election season after all. And, you know, that kind of those categories also impact the elections. And that could look like ballots being translated into languages that reflect the community. And so in in Michigan, in Hamtramck, we have, because of the census designation that happened because of grassroots efforts of communities wanting to be counted and recognized and have their needs met, the Bangladeshi community was able to get ballots in Bangla. 
And then the uh, there are now also Arabic uh, ballots in Hamtramck and also in Dearborn. Even though they're still kind of struggling with the MENA designation, it's it's a way of communities saying, we're here, we've been here, and we're going to stay here. We need you to see us and support us. So I think it's interesting how he talked about the science, uh, but it also impacts elections uh, right now. That's true. I love the example he talked about, the boy who harnessed the wind, because there's also a movie about it. And I love the idea of everyone can be a scientist and not everyone has access to a lab to create things with machines and access to those things to be able to improve the world. So science really is um, it's starting from where you are and building from what you have. So not everyone thinks like a scientist, but Prasad really says that they can. And it's not about, you know, putting research down. It's about how do you make the most impact with having the least amount of uh, harm in society? So what did you take away from what he was talking about there? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And, you know, so this was a much longer interview, you know, in its raw form. I held this man hostage for quite a while. One of the things um, he talked about that I thought was just so, 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 so interesting. We have this tendency to talk about science as if it's like new to the world and it comes from certain cultures. Like it's this you know, like European creation from within the last 100 years. But as we all know, gravity is going to happen whether you know about it or not. And so like the idea that you... Um, have nothing to contribute in science or cannot even access science if you are not a certain person in a certain circumstance in a certain place is a fascinating and truly problematic way of approaching the idea of science. And so for him to tell his physics students, you know, in America, in Detroit, in the university, that what we need to be considering are these people, these children even, so these, these people all over the world who are using scientific concepts to solve problems, this is an important thing to acknowledge that you are learning science within a certain context, but physics is going to exist in the world. And so people will, will be using physics to solve their problems. They will be using physics to solve community problems. I mean, we know people will be using physics to win billiards games. There's something about how we make the idea and culture of science seem inaccessible that um, creates this elitism and I think also makes science really intimidating when we talk about who can be a scientist and who can even understand science. We still have discussions in America about whether girls can understand science. Forget about whether your ethnicity makes it possible for you to understand science. It seems to be a fun, kind of a fundamental thing that he wants to challenge in these classes that he's created. I was thinking about the inaccessibility to science and like not allowing people to feel like they are scientists, even if they're doing science in their backyard. And when he was talking about the boy who harnessed the wind, it was a story about a kid making a windmill. And he had to like challenge the norms and like figure out things on his own and struggle through going to school. It wasn't easy. And so we don't, I think when we live in America, we don't often think about 
how these things play out in um, other countries and how it really impacts their day-to-day life. It's not about some new invention per se. It's taking something that we might already have, but that is inaccessible in that space because of whether funding or the equipment or the resources that that community has, but how there's so many countries in the world that don't even have electricity for everybody to even get to that point. So how do those communities find solutions on their own? It's really fascinating to see those kind of things. And I think it's a really important discussion, too, even for us here in America and in Detroit, where we have a city with high poverty levels and that is majority black and brown. There's that idea of science being inaccessible, both as scientific concepts and as a potential profession is an important thing, I think, to challenge. I am someone who's a little intimidated by science. I don't feel truly confident in scientific concepts and often in scientific spaces. And one of the things that was important for me to do with my little girl, my little brown girl child, was to try to create that comfort for her, even as I could not communicate the concepts. So when she was learning to ride her bike and said, can I ride my bike from the top of that hill? I would say to her and myself, Absolutely. There's something that you will understand about science once you get to the bottom of that hill that you didn't know at the top of that hill. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And in Detroit, there has been a lot of effort to create STEM and STEAM programs for these communities that traditionally don't have that kind of access. And that's something that I was a part of when I was in middle school. I didn't know about any of these things. Um, There was this effort to get more women in engineering. And um, I I also, because of that experience, put my kids in engineering camps, you know, and and I noticed like yesterday when my daughter was filling out her schedule for next year, she put even though she told me how much she didn't like the camps because it was work, they put them to work and had them make things. She signed up for those engineering classes in her school for next year. And I I saw that it made that much of a difference, that she can feel confident in taking those classes and say, you know what, I'll be OK. I'll figure it out. And so that opens doors to different career paths that were not accessible. And I have friends who are engineers and women and say it's still difficult and today um, to be a, a female engineer in these spaces because there's still so much work to do to create these barriers of understanding. And like you said, the um, the idea that women can also be engineers and in these science fields. Yeah. I meet uh, college freshmen who have thought for years that they wanted to be engineers and they get to college and realize that they don't even know what an engineer is. That, you know, there was this kind of cultural framing of what a good job looks like, what might make good money, but they weren't exposed to the scientific concepts. They didn't have the scientific or mechanical uh, experiences and supports to develop an understanding of what engineering is or to develop the skills to easily access and move through an engineering world. So really being able to expose children of color to science, engineering, technology, to make it accessible, to build that confidence, to put them in a position where they can really consciously say, this is something that I'm interested in, good at, and can do, 
is so, so, so important. And we don't have enough resources for that. I feel like, because it's all random, that we should shout out like DAPSEP, which has been trying to do that work for decades now. Um, and so that there are programs in the city, as you said, in Metro Detroit that are really focused on trying to provide those concepts to children. But it's hard to do. And it doesn't happen as much in communities of color and low-income communities as it does in communities where your father's an engineer. And so it's a lot easier to understand what we're talking about. Yeah, that's that's very a good point that sometimes these career paths are, are, you know, more accessible because you have professionals around you that are already accessing those spaces. So uh, another thing that Prasad talked about was putting on your social justice hat as a scientist. And he said for people to think about science through an anti-racist lens or a feminist lens or class equity to, to create common good. So how do you think science can be accessible in that way? And what, what do you hope to see in the future from this kind of mindset about science? It's such an interesting question because I think science, like journalism, is one of those spaces where um, the idea of objectivity seems so essential. And as a journalist, the idea of objectivity is really important to me. So I can imagine where scientists are coming from when they think about, um, you know, creating this intellectually sterile space. But I think the point that Prasad makes so, 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 so well is that there is not an intellectually sterile space, that you're bringing who you are into it and you're either doing it intentionally or you're doing it unintentionally. And so deciding as a professional, what does it look like? to be intentional about the individual role I play and the individual contribution I make to my field, to my profession, is an essential thing to do. And if you're not being intentional, then it is easy also to do damage in a scientific space by not including all of the people and variables and realities that affect the outcome of your science and even the doing of the science. So I want to thank you, Sasha, for bringing us this story. And thank you, listener, for joining us for the Detroit Evening Report weekends. As always, if there's something or someone you think we should know about, drop us a line at DetroitEveningReport at WDET.org. Mm-hmm.